Senate candidates talk bucking their own parties, and we examine an epidemic in Tennessee. This is Grand Divisions, a Tennessean politics and policy podcast. It's the week of August 20th. I'm Dave Boucher, an investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert, political reporter. So we have kind of, we're going to cover up a, a wide swath of topics today. We're going to start out with a couple of just quick hits, uh, things that we saw uh, happen this week. A couple of new ads from both the Senate campaigns, the, the Bredesen campaign and the Blackmer campaign. Joel, just give us a, a quick recap of what uh, the candidates touch on in those ads. First one came out uh, from Phil Bredesen, where essentially he goes back to New York, upstate New York, where he originally grew up and is from, uh, essentially saying, I, I can make the case that I'm going to flip Washington, D.C. politics upside down. And Marsha Blackburn's latest ad, uh, she touts her role in fighting human trafficking, specifically against uh, Backpage.com. And, and that's kind of the first issue-based TV ad of her, her yeah. election. And Backpage.com, in case you don't know, was a website where people essentially trafficked other people. It was it was supposed to be built as a site where you could meet other people, but it was essentially a site to traffic people for, for sex. Yeah, and they were shut down by the feds, and, and many of the people associated with it were indicted, so... So no negative ads, really, at this point, at least at least from the campaigns. Campaigns, at least, again, right now for Marsha, it's a policy standpoint. They're trying. Maybe that's refreshing for voters. I mean, maybe that's what we saw from the gubernatorial campaign, Well, right? yeah, but at the same time, I mean, the, the gubernatorial candidates waited until pretty much the last really month. Early. So, I mean, I would say if we anticipate any negative ads, it might be coming in late September, early October. We saw an endorsement in the Senate race as well. Joel, what happened? The U.S. Chamber of Commerce came out this week and endorsed Marsha Blackburn's candidacy. Uh, when that happened, it was actually at an event uh, that both uh, Bredesen and Blackburn were at here in Nashville, a uh, forum that was uh, hosted by members of the business community. Bredesen essentially acknowledged uh, this isn't a surprise. I mean, it would be a shocker if the U.S. Chamber of Commerce endorsed the Democrat in the race. This is not going to move the needle at all. I agree. Which And it's 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 early, and that's that's kind of what you anticipate from something like this happening. Uh, we did hear, as Joel said, from from both Bredesen and Blackburn at a, at a recent event here in Nashville. Uh, Joel went out there. He heard him talk about trade and tariffs, but also perhaps a little bit uh, more broadly about how both of them don't want to make it seem like that they are beholden to the leaders of their party. Bredesen has been very specific about that, how he's, he doesn't want to make it seem like he's a puppet for uh, for the Democrats, that he's going to vote what's best for Tennesseans. It's a little bit different for Marsha Blackburn, who has kind of said that she's been in lockstep with the president. She tries to show that there's a little distance between her and the president on, on tariffs. But take a listen to uh, what happened at this event and what they had to say. Last week at a business forum hosted at Lipscomb University, former Governor Phil Bredesen and Congressman Marsha Blackburn covered a variety of topics, everything from health care and tariffs to how they would be independent in some sense. There was Bredesen talking about his role as governor and how he bucked expectations from the National Party and even uh, some in the state. And then you also had Marsha Blackburn saying that she has, uh, in a sense, broken from the president in terms of his recently imposed tariffs. Let's take a listen at some of their answers that they provided at this forum. 
I mean, I'm a Democrat, and probably most of you in this room are not, um, but it is, um, it's not a religion. Um, it is, uh, you know, um, it's an organization I belong to. Uh, it's not a religion. I don't believe that if Chuck Schumer gets mad at me, I will go to hell automatically. And, and, um, and, and so on. I think you can expect me to go up there and uh, do the best job I can for the people of Tennessee. Um, uh, I, I'm not going up there to work for or against a party or for or against a president. I want to work for the people who have been so good to Andrea and I over the past 30 or 40 years we've lived here. After Bredesen spoke at the forum, he got a chance to catch up with media and elaborated a little bit more about his views on party politics. I'm not running from the party. I'm just trying to make people understand that, as I said in there, it's not a religion. It's, a, it's an organization. And, um, uh, and you know, I think of it like, yeah, I think a party membership is a little bit like it's not a corral that keeps you in and lets you not think about things or do things that are outside of it. It's more like, you know, the home base on you know, the ranch house where you use that as a starting point of some values, but then you can move out and you can find, you know, into other places and explore and find ways to get things get things done. I think we did that, you know, very effectively as governor on a lot of different issues. And um, uh, I, I sure think that Washington needs a dose of it. Take a listen as Blackburn explained how she has broken from the president on tariffs. I understand that the president's goal is to get to free and fair trade. I fully appreciate that China has had a trade war on us for decades and that we have lost jobs because of this and that we have to address this in order to move to free and fair trade. But that short-term impact is something that, um, that causes me some heartburn. Here's Blackburn's response to a question about whether she would support legislation that would reel in the president's work in terms of tariffs. I think we tread lightly when it comes to restricting the president's authority on issues of national security, and aluminum is one of those examples. When reporters had a chance to catch up with Blackburn, she gave a little bit more of an explanation on her views on providing checks on the president. I think it's so imperative that we have um, the ability to, to protect ourselves. Food security, you look at manufacturing security. Uh, one of the things that had been pointed out is um, aluminum smelters. We were down to two that were in the country, and uh, we were down to a few steel mills. And as a national security issue, you need to be bolstering that. U.S. Steel is re, uh, refiring uh, some of their mills, and we know that there is a, one more aluminum smelter that is going to be coming online. And that is where it gets into a national security issue. So that is an area where I think we just have to be very thoughtful and very careful. So is there legislation that should be pursued to limit the president's ability to impose these tariffs unilaterally, or should that always be in the, the president's purview? Uh, that is probably something that you'll see a more thorough and complete discussion on. What we want to make certain is you don't do anything that's going to be uh, uh, too quick a response. It should be a well-thought-out response. 
So that's a little bit more from the Senate candidates about their approach to politics, right, and their approach to how they're going to uh, work with the national parties or, or not in, in their campaigns. Um, shifting a little bit to approach to policy, everybody at the Senate level, the gubernatorial level, and frankly, the local community level knows that Tennessee has just been uh, really hit by the opioid epidemic. It's not something new to Tennessee, but it's something that any elected official needs to have a platform on and, and, and can be able to talk about um, how they can address the problem here in the state. Later on in the podcast, we're going to hear from Dr. Manny Sethi. He is a surgeon here in Nashville. He also uh, runs a nonprofit in town. He's also kind of a, a, a Republican. He had toyed with the idea of running for U.S. Senate as, as a Republican. He kind of uh, hangs out at Republican um, events. But he's going to talk to us as an expert about uh, approaches to combating the opioid epidemic. But first, we're going to learn a little bit more about the impact of this epidemic kind of at the, the ground level. The Tennessean and many other media outlets reports on this all the time. We had a great story recently from Brett Kelman. He's our healthcare reporter talking about police officers who use the medicine to help revive overdose victims when they when they arrive on the scene. Uh, we're going to talk today with uh, Elena Sauber. She's a reporter in Williamson County who recently met with a family who has been affected by the, the epidemic. Tens of thousands of people have died from the opioid epidemic around the country. In 2017, Greg Whithauer was one of them. He's a 23-year-old man in Williamson County. Uh, my colleague, Elena Sauber, recently sat down with his parents, um, Mark and Karen. Just Elena, can you talk to us a little bit about just, it's been a year since, since he died. Talk to us a little bit about where they're at, what they think about his addiction. Sure. So um, one thing that uh, the Woodhowers told me was that they were really mobilized after uh, Greg's death not to sort of let his memory fade away. And that was part of the reason they were really um, inspired and motivated to raise awareness about addiction, especially in their community. Um, Greg was adopted uh, when he was born, and he was raised uh, by the Whithowers in uh, Franklin. He had a really just very normal childhood, uh, went to some private schools, then uh, transferred to public schools as he um, went into middle school and high school. Um, when he hit high school, um, he started dabbling in drugs, he started with marijuana, and as, you know, commonly families have told me, um, kind of starts there and they sort of work their way up over time. Um, so it's hard for, you know, some families like to sort of dismiss it as maybe they're just experimenting or it's just a phase. But in the case of uh, Greg's situation, um, it was something that continued to escalate over time. Yeah. And it's obviously, it's still really raw for his parents. You can hear from him here just talking about, uh, again, how emotional this experience still is for them and, and what some of their takeaways are. I mean, he would say, Mom, I just, every day, he just eats at me. You know, and as a parent, you want to you hold your baby and take care of them and make sure that they're okay. But when they have the disease of addiction, you can't. You can't parent them that way. You just can't. Because if you do, you'll kill them. So, Elena, what does this mean in terms of Williamson County? How does Williamson County kind of compare with the rest of the state from what you can tell? So what I found just by um, looking at some statistics from uh, the Department of Health and some other areas that um, Williamson County doesn't have a particularly striking number of uh, drug overdose deaths overall. They had uh, 26 overdose deaths total in 2016. But what I found kind of interesting was that uh, the number of 
hospitalizations from overdoses was much higher. So in 2015, uh, the county had 265 non-fatal overdose outpatient visits and 116 non-fatal overdose inpatient visits. And uh, one thing that I spoke um, about with uh, Trisha Benitez, she is uh, an addiction specialist with uh, addiction campuses in Nashville. She talks to um, employees who work at Williamson Medical Center uh, pretty frequently. And it's not uncommon for them to... um, talk to her about how people might come in in to be treated for an overdose uh, and then leave without choosing to go into treatment. So, um, you know, she said they kind of, they, they, they're treated, uh, you know, they, it's well established that they've overdosed and they still don't think that they need to get help. Yeah. And that's, I mean, just looking at those numbers and thinking about it, it's about one happening every other day, either almost one, uh, one a day or a little bit less than that. So this is happening a lot, these non-fatal overdose outpatient visits. What, what are the Whithowers, what do they want people to know about their son and about the realities of addiction in Williams County or just uh, for anybody? What, what do they hope people take away from their story? So I think they wouldn't want people to take away a few things. Um, the Woodhower is actually connected with another family in Williamson County, uh, Liz and Yarnell Beatty. They live in Brentwood, and they lost their son Alex to uh, a drug overdose um, also in, in 2016. Um, those two families actually connected uh, during a, uh, a forum that the Beatty family put together after their son's death called Breaking the Silence. And that has really kind of been um, an outreach event that brings uh, medical professionals um, and, and, and other people with uh, who've been touched by the op- opioid epidemic, um, just to kind of come together and have a conversation about it and sort of learn what the signs might be of loved ones who may be struggling with addiction, and really just kind of to get a basic understanding um, of what the disease looks like and also connect with other families who've been touched by it. And I think if you ask the Woodhowers, that's one of the biggest things that they say is that the families who have loved ones, especially children who are struggling with addictions, cannot do it by themselves. They absolutely have to have um, a network of support somewhere, whether that's their their friends, neighbors, um, Al-Anon, uh, different resources like that. It's a really important story. It's a story that we're going to continue to follow in Williams County and across the state. Elena Sauber, thanks so much for joining us and, and talking to us about uh, this, this family. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. A lot of questions that come out of that uh, that interaction and uh, that experience that, that Elena talked to us about. We're going to hopefully get a few answers here as we look at kind of a 30,000-foot view of the opioid epidemic here in Tennessee. Uh, joining us today is Dr. Manny Sethi. He is the founder of a nonprofit here in town called Healthy Tennessee. He's also an orthopedic trauma surgeon here in Nashville. Uh, Dr. Sethi, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's just start off just basic uh, base-level question. And this might be a little broad, but what is the state of the opioid epidemic in Tennessee today? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. You know, the state of uh, the opioid crisis in Tennessee uh, is devastating. Right now, uh, about three people a day die of uh, an overdose. If you looked at every person across the state, every single person in Tennessee, each person, based on the averages, has about 50 pills of Vicodin in their home. 20 pills of oxycodone, and approximately 30 pills of alprazolam, which are some pretty heavy drugs. If you look at pain clinics across Tennessee, so where I grew up uh, in Coffee County, per, you know, there's a McDonald's for one, you know, about every 26,000 people, there's a McDonald's. So pretty easy to get to and find on the interstate, right? 
If you look at pain clinics in Coffee County, where I grew up, it's one in 10,000. So essentially, it's easier to find a pain clinic or what we call a pill mill than it is a Big Mac. A, a, yeah, a Big Mac. How does that How does that happen? And how long has that been happening? Well, I think it's been happening uh, for the last, say, two decades where we just, this, this crisis sort of snuck up on us. And these sort of pill mills, pain clinics have been unregulated. We didn't, we didn't really realize what they were doing. Uh, Governor Haslam and his administration, uh, the Department of Health, they've been doing a great job since uh, 2010, 2012, really trying to improve and, and regulate some of these, these uh, pain clinics. So that's getting better. But I think that, that in general, you know, the pharmaceutical industry were, was pushing these, these opioids, the, the, the insurance industry with Medicare, Medicaid, you know, they were saying, we need, to, we need to help patients, we need to reduce their pain. And it was just this perfect storm that hit us. And we did not realize the addictive power of these drugs. Where does uh, Tennessee fall compared to other states? I mean, you always hear about yeah. Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia. Where are we in the ranking of either prescription uh, or overdose rates? So in terms of prescriptions, we're number two in the nation for uh, prescriptions of uh, opioids for patients. So approximately it's uh, 1.4 prescriptions uh, for every citizen that lives in this state. So just imagine that every in each of our pockets we could have – a, a prescription for oxycodone or, or Vicodin. In terms of our overdose numbers, we're number eight in the nation. So it is really a problem in Tennessee. And it's not, when you look at Knoxville or Nashville or Memphis, you know, the problems are there, but where they're, where they're really powerful are in small uh, rural towns, like where I grew up in Manchester. It's rural Tennessee that's really suffering. Is this, so I, I can't imagine that Tennesseans are more susceptible to addiction than any other states. Is this something where state or federal policymakers in Tennessee kind of fell asleep at the wheel? Or as you said, some of these manufacturers or providers saw an opportunity to make a lot of money. Like how does that, how does this happen in Tennessee versus in a different state? You know, I think it is that uh, maybe we just, we didn't see this epidemic coming. Maybe, maybe some of the other states saw it earlier uh, it's Tennessee is such a vast state uh, with with such different parts, um, you know, east, west, and middle Tennessee. You know, these rural uh, uh, counties and towns. It's easy to uh, open up a, a pain clinic to, without being you know regulated or seen. And I think over time now we've improved that. But you know, that's in terms of the state. But I think federally the problem was that we just did not, as the federal government, regulate these pharmaceutical industries. Uh, pushing these uh, these narcotics because we didn't realize their their very powerful addictive uh, potential and we we got behind the ball. But I think the important thing is now that we know we we really have to take steps, which we are. Well, and, and that's a good transition. What steps are we taking, yeah. and what steps do you think still need to be uh, sure. taken by either the state government, uh, local you know law enforcement officials, uh, health community, that sort yeah. of thing. Well, I think that Governor Haslam has created this new program. It's called Tennessee Together. I think that's a very good first step because I think it really raises general awareness, and it's really based on sort of three three kind of pillars. It's prevention, and it's treatment, and then it's law enforcement. And the prevention side is to get across communities and, and really try to get people educated on the front end of this issue and why opioids are, are a problem you know, from the uh, treatment side to, to kind of in, uh, increase uh, MATs or medical assisted therapy 
places across the uh, across the state for patients, and then finally, improving law enforcement and regulation. So, for example, you know this drug fentanyl, which is an, uh, a synthetic opioid, is being shipped you know from places like China, Mexico, across our borders. We really have to think about how we're going to uh, uh, stop the flow of this fentanyl, and I think law enforcement is really going to be the key. And, and fentanyl, for those that aren't aware, it's very dangerous, right? Like I, if you take just a, a little bit of this versus uh, a prescription painkiller, uh, you could end up in the hospital if not dead. And just for context, the state of Nebraska used fentanyl in an execution this week. It was the first time that's ever been used. I mean, that's that clearly shows that it's a terribly dangerous and powerful drug that, that people are getting yeah. Somewhat frequently, right? More addictive than cocaine. People say it's 60 times more powerful than morphine. It is a very, very strong drug. And, and it's, I really believe uh, that in terms of some of the crises we faced as a nation, the HIV crisis, others, this fentanyl problem, I think we're only beginning to understand you know, the vast implications uh, of what's going on. And again, you know, the larger cities, Nashville, Memphis, Knoxville, we have, you know, the police force, we have people who can regulate, but in the smaller towns, that's where we're really missing the boat. As you are working on addressing the overall epidemic, you, of course, are working with bringing people together, sure. uh, kind of making sure that the conversation is being shared across uh, various aspects of, of, you know, either law enforcement community, uh, government, et cetera. What, can, what role do insurance companies, manufacturers, doctors, patients, et cetera, play in fighting these, this epidemic? So that's a great question. So first of all, in terms of the insurers, Honestly, it was really Medicare, you know, the government insurance for over, uh, patients over 65 that really started this, pri- this crisis. As a, as a, I'm a trauma surgeon, and so part of the way that I'm evaluated by Medicare is that they look at patients' pain scores. So when I walk in in the morning and I see you, uh, Joel, I say, Joel, how are you doing? Tell me how your, your pain is and rate it on a scale of 1 to 5. If you say 5 and consistently, which is I'm in a lot of pain, and, I, and that's documented repeatedly, Medicare ultimately will ding the hospital, will ding the provider. And so what happened in the 90s was there became this culture of treating pain that we, <laughs> we absolutely do not want... Anybody to be in any pain. In any pain. And, you know, with, with that, with, you know, there was more pressure from hospitals on doctors, et cetera. And so this be, it began this perfect storm. And then other insurers will always follow the Medicare rules. And that, so that's what happened. You know, in terms of, so I think, you know, and now it is the insurer, I, I think it's the responsibility for insurers to support treatment for these problems, for, for medical assisted therapy, for, for patients to get what they need to adequately rehab them. I think it's really important and we're not, they're not doing a good enough job. In terms of doctors, I think it is pivotal the physicians realize their own role in this. Look, as a, as, a, as a provider, as a doctor, patients come to me a lot, and, and I'll have 50 patients in a clinic. I got I to gotta move along. And it's, it's really hard when you have someone who's asking for pain medication. To say no. And they get frustrated, yeah. and, and they start crying. And there's, but you just you have to help them by not giving them that medication. Yeah, we just in that in that that family that Elena spoke to, their son says that after he he injured his back at work, he went and saw a doctor. He told the doctor that he was an addict and that he was in drug court. And according to the family, the doctor prescribed him painkillers anyway, 
and he relapsed. Like, it seems like clearly there's there's plenty of culpability to go around in, in, in an opioid crisis. But if I go into my doctor and I tell him what's going wrong with me and my doctor gives me medication, I think that's what I'm supposed to take, right? Like, I don't I don't know what I'm supposed to not take or or, or supposed to take. And so it does seem like a lot of it, like you're saying, falls on the on the physician to say, I'm sorry, this is this is either this is not the right drug for you or here are other here's therapy or here's something else. Right. Like that. That feels like that's a big part of it. Absolutely. And that's you know, and the problem is, is that right now uh, in Tennessee, so many people are doing so many different things across the state because through Healthy Tennessee, we've done community health outreach across the state. What you find is, is that what happens in East Tennessee will not work in the in the West or will not work in Middle Tennessee. So there are different people across the state doing different things, and we have to bring them together to talk about you know, solutions that can work for everybody and shared outcomes and shared goals. And so that's what, that's what we're trying to do at Healthy Tennessee right and now. It, and it, that's, correct me if I'm wrong, but that appears to be what you're, you want to continue that conversation on August 24th when you're having uh, folks come together here in Nashville, including uh, the gubernatorial candidates, Bill Lee, uh, Carl Dean, Marsha Blackburn, and, and, and former Governor Phil Bredesen to talk about their ideas, but also people that are involved in the day-to-day operations of fighting this epidemic. That's seemingly what's going on at that. That's exactly right. Because- I think that the overall, the most successful strategy for treating this opioid crisis is going to be this, is we have to, it has to be the power of local communities that solve this problem. We have to empower communities because look, like in Coffee County, this problem is very different than what's happening in Davidson County. And we have to unleash, you know, folks to, to do, you know, what's best for their communities. And I think you know, that in the future in terms of state government is what I would suggest to the next governor is that, you know, really take the time to travel to all of these communities and see the great work that they're doing. But what may work in Memphis may not work in Knoxville. And we have to we have to really think about that. You bring up an interesting point. The the gubernatorial candidates, at least before the primary, had all said this is probably one of the most important issues that we need to address as the next governor. Carl Dean on his website says that the, the government response to the opioid use should match the level of public health crisis it has become. Bill Lee has said uh, we must address the taxpayer subsidized access to opioids, which makes solving the opioid challenge harder than it should be. How optimistic are you hearing their, you know, comments and their recognition that this is a huge uh, task ahead? How optimistic are you that the next governor is going to be able to tackle this a little bit more than we've seen in the past eight years? I'm, I'm actually very optimistic because I've spent time with both of them and, and this has been an issue. But I think one issue, and I think that uh, Mr. Lee raises that in that quote, is that one problem is, is you have all of these folks now, over 250,000 across Tennessee, and that's just a, that's a, very, that's a, a minimalist uh, uh, number who are struggling with this problem. How, if they don't have insurance, do they get medical-assisted treatment? And even if they do have insurance, some of the times they don't cover it. So we have to find a way to rehab these citizens, to get them the treatment they need, to get them on their way, Otherwise, this is just going to be it, lip service. Yeah, and it's going to be a it's going to be a, a a continual problem. Like I, I think, for example, what we need to focus on is more public private partnerships. So, for example, you have all of these like kind of venture capital funds right now. Like so there's a, a group in town. They're called uh, Altitude uh, Altitude Ventures, 
and they're supporting, you know, 180 degree health partners and uh, Journey Pure. And what these folks are doing is, is they've created these MATs across the state, are working with mothers who are at risk to have uh, uh, babies with neonatal abstinence syndrome or babies who are addicted to narcotics. But that's all a privately funded venture. <laughs> and, and I think that that could be, you know, part of the future. To, to, to sustain this kind of uh, research and development and, and get patients what they need. At, at the same time, if, if we're looking at what a governor can do when they come in, you talked earlier about unleashing these counties to kind of do what they are supposed to do sure. or what they think is, is working. Is that, a, is that a, just, a, 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 I guess, something where Bill Lee comes in and he says, okay, Coffee County, here's a block grant to do what you're doing? Or is it something where Carl Dean comes in and says the le- asks the legislature to expand Medicaid eligibility coverage so that there is more money flowing into communities. Like, like what is it that the governor can do to, to empower these local communities to do what's working well or find something that can work better? You know, I, I actually, I'm a, a, a supporter of the block grant uh, concept because I think that that, I think that, you know, when you expand Medicaid, you have to do certain things that every state has to do. And I just, I believe that every state is different, and so I'm a supporter of the block grant program. But I think the key is is that, you know, as you said, I think that the state legislature can't solve this problem. I think that it's got to be local communities. It's got to be, you know, the county mayor, the city mayor, the chamber of commerce. They need to get together, and they need to say, okay, look, within this, you know, either we do it via economic development zones. You know, we take the seven or eight economic development zones, or we take, you know, we do it county by county. But... I'm telling you, I grew up in Manchester. I grew up in Hillsborough, Tennessee. This problem is very different than the problem that you see, say, in Hawkins County out in East Tennessee where we've been. And I think it really takes folks who are in the community who understand this. And I think that, you know, and that's, again, where the federal government can come in because we have all of these amazing things going on across the country in different parts of the different states, different things. We should be able to gain some research, gain some data on what's working, what's not working, and and utilize that. You know, I think that could be pretty amazing data. Are there other things that you think, again, we've got Marsha Blackburn sure. and, and Phil Bridison set to talk to you, your organization next week. What are you hoping that they will say the, the feds need to do? You know, if we had a magic wand tomorrow, what would yeah. you like to see the federal government do? You know, if I if I were to to be speaking with them, I would encourage a couple things. I'd say, one, I think this is a national security issue with the fentanyl. I think that we really need to improve border security because this is how it's coming in. I mean, it's and it's so hard to quantify and detect that we are going to have to get our, our national security apparatus to think about what are ways that we could stop this fentanyl from being trafficked in the country. And, turn, and then secondly, I would say we need to think about how to increase federal, uh, uh, make, make this a harder crime. When you're selling fentanyl, if you're caught, you know, it's, it, you're going to go to jail for a very long time. And then the reflexively, I would say the other part of this is I think that we need to encourage states to, uh, promote these drug courts. So for example, I don't think that someone who's been addicted to oxycodone needs to be going to jail unless they were trying to sell it or I think we need to focus on getting them better, getting them into the drug court system. And that's a state issue, but to some degree, it's also a federal one. And and so some of these are the, the things that I would encourage. And again, you know, public-private partnerships. Obviously, all the candidates have, have 
readily acknowledge that the opioid crisis is a problem that they're going to face. It's a real problem for Tennessee. We'll see how the platforms evolve and potentially um, flourish during the, the campaign. Uh, hopefully we'll hear from, from all of them or most of them at, uh, at your event on Friday. Again, it's called Working Together to Find Solutions to the Opioid Crisis. Dr. Manny Sethi, uh, orthopedic trauma surgeon here in town and founder of nonprofit Healthy Tennessee. Thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate your insight. Thank you all so much. See you Friday. Again, uh, just a huge issue for both the Senate candidates and the gubernatorial candidates trying to come out with platforms that people can understand and and can kind of kind of take a hold of to make real change to affect the the opioid epidemic. Um, we heard recently from the the Lee campaign about bringing on new staff members to help him kind of. Uh, craft his message and to move the campaign forward. Um, the the first name that that is recognizable to us and, and maybe to you guys is Lane Arnold. Lane Arnold was the press secretary for the Boyd campaign, right? Yeah, she was quite helpful throughout the campaign, and I think it was probably a smart move for the Lee campaign to, to dip into some of the folks that were on Randy Boyd. And it's not uncommon for that to happen. If no. there's a crowded primary, then then they can go, and either the, the people come to the campaign, the campaign will reach out to people that they like from other candidates. Uh, another person is Kim Kaigi. She's a well-known, well-respected Republican fundraiser. Governor Haslam used used her. She uh, came on board to help them some some raise some money. Um, another person that might be uh, familiar to Williamson County people is Julie Hanna. She's the former chairman of the Williamson County Republican Party. Uh, the last person the team is bringing on is a guy named Joseph Williams. Uh, the the campaign says that he uh, ran for State House District Fifty Six. That he's a constitutional lawyer, former Teach for America guy. That's a that's a uh, education program that puts non-traditionally trained teachers into to public, typically public classrooms, says that he is going to lead coalition building efforts. So that that should be important. The other things that have been happening on the governor's race, we saw recent endorsements from uh, Carl uh, uh, Craig Fitzhugh of Carl Dean, as well as uh, Chattanooga Mayor Andy Burke. He came out in support of uh, Dean's campaign. We also saw uh, more recently a new FEC Federal Election Commission complaint filed against the Marsha Blackburn campaign, essentially alleging that there is illegal coordination going on between the campaign and a couple of outside political action committees. Uh, you know, it seems like the, these things get filed all the time, especially in election years. Who knows if this will go anywhere? But uh, if you're interested, feel free to check out Joey Garrison's story on that development. Yeah. And then I think probably the biggest marquee sort of structural questions that we have for especially the Senate race, which is kind of moving into the spotlight ahead of the governor's race, is is when are the candidates or if the candidates are going to debate? We, we've, heard, we've heard a little bit from both campaigns about their strategy and and. You know, this is clearly a strategy. This, it's, there's a, a lot of questions about how much you want to do it, when you want to do it. What, what did we hear from both campaigns this uh, recently about about their debate strategy? Bredesen's campaign came out and said that they agreed to do four debates. They named them. They came up with uh, the times and locations. Uh, th- they're not the ones proposing these debates. These have actually been proposed by media organizations, but they're just agreeing to say we want to do four debates. Blackburn's campaign has said we're still finalizing our debate schedule. They have not confirm whether they would participate in any of these four or if they have other ones in mind. But clearly, uh, it's it's drawing interest, uh, you know, 
on the national level. I mean, this week uh, we had George Will uh, attend a recent forum, and he told me uh, that this was, quote, the most interesting race in America. So Yeah, there's serious calculus for both campaigns. I mean, if you see the Phil Bredesen camp want to have four debates, that gets his name out there a little bit more, and that puts him up on policy issues next to next to Marsha Blackburn. Again, as we said earlier in the cast, we, we did hear about, about the back page and human trafficking policy issue from, from the Marsha campaign. I think the Bredesen campaign wants to debate her on policy as opposed to the politics of this race. And, and Bredesen, I think, is, is you know, he's clearly already been involved in debates in the past in his runs for governor uh, as well as mayor. Marsha Blackburn, not necessarily on the same, you know, footing, at least in terms of uh, previous experience on debating. I'm sure she can handle her own and she'll be well prepped by her team. Uh, but again, we'll see how many debates there will actually be. Uh, a quick side note, uh, in the 2006 race between uh, Harold Ford and Bob Corker, there were three debates all in October, so in the last month of the election. We will bring you all the coverage from any debate. You can find it at Tennessean.com or any of the other uh, USA Today Network Tennessee sites here in the state. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. We hope they debate like 17 times, right? <laughs> like Joel just loves going to debates. It's his favorite thing to cover. Candidates, if you're listening now, schedule more. Four is not enough. In the meantime, this has been Grand Divisions. Like us, rate us on iTunes, wherever else you get your podcasts. We really appreciate your feedback. Continue to send us questions. We've gotten a few questions this week. Keep bringing them in. We're going to keep putting them out to the campaigns and to to voters. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'm Dave Boucher, investigative reporter. And I'm Joel Ebert. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.